on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira. Kara. And I'm Lewis. See, I've trained them yeah. to do it for yeah. me. You didn't even do it this week. No. There's a lot of news happening this week. I feel like Arguably this, too much. I feel like this could be a seven-hour episode. It won't be, no matter how many times you all ask on Twitter. Um, a little bit later, we will have an interview with Zachary Quinto, who is in the new Broadway play, The Boys in the Band. Before we get to that, Claire Foy got her coins. Yes, I feel like maybe they all heard Keep It because that was my recommendation was to it was. pay that woman her money that they owed her and they did. Like literally paying her all of her back pay. Yes. Claire Foy, um, if you missed that episode, don't know how you did, you should be listening to every episode of Keep It. She is the star of The Crown and news reports came out that her co-star was making much more money than her simply because he was on Doctor Who. Or Doctor Sherlock. Sherlock which, which is Strange my question. Who, Doctor what? Who? Yes. Yeah. No, so they're paying her. They're giving her her back pay. And also she, I I'd said this, I was gushing before, but she was so amazing. And obviously I understand the way Hollywood works and pain and that when you're an actor that comes in with more cachet or with a, a longer resume or whatever, that contractually you it makes more sense to give them more money. But in this particular case, the fact that it is the show, it is called The Crown. She's the queen. She is giving by far the best performance in in that entire series like it just was it was a blunder and shout out to them for fixing it i feel like people had to raise a huge stink in order for you to do it so would have preferred if maybe that you looked inward and saw that that was the solution and you can never get brits to do anything when we're back we'll dive into michelle wolf and the white house correspondence dinner hashtag mute r kelly and tom brokaw keep it is brought to you by barefoot dreams Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I 
effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside. And then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. On Saturday night, Michelle Wolf delivered a hilarious White House correspondence dinner stand up set that took aim at the mainstream media and several members of the Trump administration, most notably Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And of course we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia and The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Mike, Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it. I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like she burns facts and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. After the speech, it prompted several members of the media to accuse Michelle of being overly cruel to Sarah Sanders, particularly the New York Times' Maggie Haberman, who said that she was attacking Sanders' looks. Well, also, because this is what I love, she said, Sarah Huckabee Sanders sat and absorbed intense criticism as her, of her physical appearance, her job performance, and so forth, instead of walking out on national television was impressive. She did not insult her physical appearance. But she what did I, not one But time what do I that. love was job performance, because here's the thing. If Sarah Huckabee Sanders 
job description is to lie frequently and blatantly to the American people. She she did insult it because she does that incredibly well. If Sarah Huckabee Sanders job is to literally anything else, then she's super shitty at her job. And something about the job performance thing to me was like, do you think she's doing a good job, Maggie? Maggie, is that what you're saying? Right. Like she's Melanie Griffith and working girl just putting her effort in and doing her best. Give me a break. The fervor, which with people in the media are just so defending Sarah Huckabee Sanders is wild to me. And it's not just this instance. It's always this need to protect her as if she's in the glass fucking menagerie. She lies to you you every day. Every day that woman stands up there and lies to you, makes your job harder. It's what are you defending? We openly mock Sean Spicer for being an idiot. And yet for her, it's 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 gauche to mention that she's doing anything. And part of it seems like super misogynistic because the implication was that the joke about the perfect smoky eye that she made from burning all of the lies that she makes was an insult. We completely stepped over the fact that Michelle made fun of like Mitch McConnell's neck. Yes. People do that all the time. And that was the only joke in the set that was making fun of somebody else's appearances. She said something else about Chris, Chris Christie that could be argued that way. But the smoky eye thing, I mean, if again, if you're offended by smoky eye jokes, you should never watch Michael Kors on Project Runway. You should never watch the controversial show Fashion Police. This is so commonplace in comedy to pretend it's suddenly new that Michelle Wolf invented. I noticed you're wearing makeup. I'm going to say something about the makeup. To pretend that that's like wild and incendiary is sad. I also loved when they were like, she's a mother and a wife and she's insulted. So if you're not married, it fuck you. Is that what we're saying? Like if you're not, only mothers can't be insulted. That one came from Micah Brzezinski, who has had all sorts of vile things said about her by Donald Trump. Right. And yet she's still out here saying the White House Correspondents Dinner was a big win for Donald Trump because of Michelle's cruelty. I actually feel like, I've only heard a little bit of this, but the fact is I think people feel like they can get Michelle Wolf to apologize because she's a woman. When Hassan Minaj was ma- making jokes at people's expense, you know, last year, or Colbert before that, no one was like, please apologize for what you've said. If anything, they, they were lauded for being as sort of um, straightforward and, and mean, I guess, as they were. Oh. And also, I want to say, it just threw in a sharp relief for me how many opinions about a woman telling jokes I don't care about. Everybody's certainly allowed to have their opinion, but guess what? Like some of us, like this is our religion, like watching like women go up there and like tell truth to power. Some of us like care about Margaret Cho wearing a pleather pantsuit in 1993 on HBO or Paula Poundstone or Elvira Kurt or whatever. And you pretending like now you have the standing to come in here and and say what a woman should or shouldn't be saying when the fact is you're not a fan of women in comedy anyway, conservative assholes who care about what uh, what Michelle Wolf said. For me, the most egregious part of this was the response from the white House Correspondents Association or whatever the hell they're called. Those fucking assholes. Who released a statement basically like apologizing for her performance and it just was so... It was not in the spirit of the dinner. It was so So cowardly. So cowardly where you have had people who have been way meaner than Michelle Wolf, and because these idiots thought, misheard 
Also because you had a bunch of people who misinterpreted and misunderstood the joke about the smoky eye, where she very clearly is not making fun of her appearance. And because these are the people who are who are getting loud on Twitter, all of a sudden, this is who you need to concede to. Like, you don't owe these people anything. And this is the person you hired, you brought in, and to just completely abandon her because a bunch of dum-dums on Twitter didn't like her completely fine jokes is just like a next level of just spinelessness it's also the irony in the fact that we just had the moment where laura ingraham had to apologize and she was losing advertisers and every conservative was telling you that they are tired of you know being made to apologize they're tired of pc culture and every time someone who's a liberal makes any sort of joke there's always this apology. It's not just Michelle Wolf, it's journalists, it's SNL cast members making any sort of joke on Twitter. The first thing that they want is an apology. And they demand these apologies and they act so hurt and put upon that anyone would dare criticize them when meanwhile, every time Donald Trump says something vile, Sarah Huckabee Sanders gets on the podium and says, He's just making a joke. Totally. You all need to yeah. learn to take a joke. I mean, and the fact that this is a group of people who were fine with tons of people on the internet slandering children who had just been through a mass shooting, and but now they're getting all in their feelings because someone made a joke about a grown-ass woman who chooses to do this job every single day. Like, give me a fucking break. And by the way, she's openly related to Mike Huckabee, who is like an old decomposed bananas and pajamas looking asshole <laughs> and like the worst homophobe ever. Who keeps telling his own disgust jokes on Twitter all the time and telling people to get a sense of humor if they can't take his Cracker Barrel stand-up routine. <laughs> Which is like borderline refrigerator magnets. Like sometimes I have no idea what he's saying. Um, <laughs> additionally, by the way, there was this additional hubbub about uh, Michelle Wolf comparing uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders to Ann Dowd's character in The Handmaid's Tale. First of all, Ann Dowd is amazing second of all she gave an emmy speech where she said hulu like that <laughs> which i rewatch a lot of the time and then third of all their roles are actually similar they have to come down on people and be you know uh mean for lack of a better word anyway she's never seen the show oh, i mean yeah, these right. people i'm she's never <laughs> seen the show they have no idea what's happening what also really annoyed me about the uproar over the comparison to the handmaid's tale was people thought that merely comparing sarah huckabee to Ann Dowd's character was an insult on her looks, just like the smoky eye thing. And my real question is, what do y'all think about Sarah Huckabee Sanders' looks? Because every time anybody says anything about her, people are always insinuating that people are attacking her looks when no one's bringing up her looks. And Michelle Wolf even responded that to Maggie. She was like, I wasn't insulting her looks, but... What do you think about them? Because the, you, you keep went bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, you saw You're it. Always, this... you always. They are always leaping there. These people just literally do not understand jokes. They are. They have no one in their life who is funny. They see. They just literally. They are either choosing not to understand this, which is its own sort of. Yeah, they're willfully know. misinterpreting. But I think part of me is also like, I think they maybe just don't. Maybe they just don't get jokes, guys. <laughs> well, <They> just... <laughs> there are also. A lot of people online in Michelle Wolf's mentions who did not know she was white. Either. I know, God. <laughs> yeah. Michelle Wolf has made jokes about this before on The Daily Show about the fact that, you know, she. She's looks, often confused she's, for being biracial yes. or, or black. She made a joke about how she looks like both Annies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and 
there were so many people online just attacking her you know I mean it's it's almost sweet that they think they would have let a black woman get away with saying all of that I kind of appreciate the fantasy world that we're living in where they would have hired a black woman to do the show and then hired let her a black say all woman yeah, in the first place and then <laughs> let her do all of those jokes I actually would like to reside in that world because it ain't this one people I have a question about uh Michelle Wolf's set um there are a couple of jokes that I straight up didn't get name there's one that I really didn't get which is Mike Pence is what happens when Anderson Cooper isn't gay. Here's my question. Does that mean they both have silver hair and also gay people are nice and Mike Pence is mean? I just don't understand what that even means. I are get... we Michelle Wolf, Lewis? I just want to know. <laughs> I want to be on her side. Yeah. I actually didn't really get that joke either. Part of it was maybe that people see Anderson Cooper as uptight. I don't know. Yeah. Is that it? I guess that could be it. Michelle. If Call you're in. Listening, yes. Lewis is real confused. He would like some clarification. Right. He, I can see it in his eyes. I'm he really crying. wants to know. But if you've seen Anderson Cooper's ex boyfriends, the last thing I call him is outside. No joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought her best joke was the one about Ted Kennedy, by the way. I think she deserves more credit for that one. The Ted Kennedy joke was beautiful. Yeah. Chappaquiddick in yes. theaters now. <laughs> Perfect way to button that joke. So a lot of people have suggested that we just get rid of the White House Correspondents' Dinner in general. I sort of agree, if only because the purpose of the dinner seems to be journalists and celebrities hobnobbing with people in the government who are usually monsters. It was cute, you know, during the Obama era, and celebrities actually showed up to that one, but celebrities have been skipping it this year and last year because none of them like Trump, and yet you still have journalists sitting there um, laughing along with members of the Trump administration as if these aren't the same people who are trying to destroy the rights of millions of Americans every day. Yeah, it's not like a Dean Martin celebrity roast, whereas, you know, the point of it is making fun of Lucille Ball to her face and like getting a laugh out of it. These are truly horrible people making decisions that affect people's lives. And to it's like make Os light of that is an odd thing that we're used to. It's like the Oscars where everyone's Roman Polanski. The, yeah. the only thing I do like is when you do have someone like Michelle Wolf or when you had Stephen Colbert where they just read these people for filth in their faces and not just the Trump administration, but a lot of the quote unquote journalists in the room who... We need that. Who, who need who need to have some shit told to them to their face and need to be made uncomfortable because you have a lot of responsibility and there's a bunch of you who are fucking this up. And so I like the idea that that's really the only time where they just have to sit there and take it. But, you know, her best part was the ending where she talked about how much journalists were benefiting from mm -hmm. Donald Trump. They aired his speeches constantly during the election and now all of them are writing books and mm -hmm. getting all sorts of deals off of talking about Trump and the election and it's you created this monster and now you're profiting on it. And covered the Flint water crisis you assholes which fucking, was like that was Murphy an, Browns. That was an awesome final line. Also it's just at first I thought watching her tell jokes and then seeing people in the audience react uncomfortably like stiff white conservative men was bad or like I didn't want to see it. I didn't care what their reactions were. But also, those people make us feel so uncomfortable all the time. And even though we spend all our time on Twitter voicing how much we hate them, it's still easy to feel isolated with how much you hate these people. And to watch them be uncomfortable for even a second is actually awesome. So we got another Me Too on our hands. 
uh, envy suit. <laughs> guess who, guess who it is? <laughs> we just have a wheel in it the podcast like studio. It feels like days are in years. Every day feels like a full year. <laughs> uh, NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw is the latest person accused of sexual misconduct after two news reports outlined allegations made against him by former NBC correspondent Linda Vester and another unnamed woman. Brokaw denied the allegations and in a crazy turn of events, 64 of his former and current colleagues signed a letter in his defense. Why, guys? Also, here's one of the here's a there's a piece from the letter that I loved. Tom has treated each of us with fairness and respect. He has given each of us opportunities for advancement and championed our success throughout our careers. What the hell does that have to do with anything we are talking about? He can be both championing you and helping your career and groping women in conference rooms behind his back. You don't know what the fuck is happening just because he didn't do you didn't mean it didn't happen. And I'm so tired, particularly of like smart women. Rachel Maddow. Of people who, who know better, who understand the nature of uh, of men like this who know that they they're not out here attacking powerful women that so much of this is a power thing of course he's not gonna fucking touch you rachel maddow what are you talking about maria shriver of course he's gonna champion you and help you you're not a vulnerable woman who he knows will be silenced and that just to me for people who i know know better was so disappointing and just small of them also that's what we hated about louis ck's apology was that he brought up that he helped all these other women, you know, that that we thought that was so smug that he would bring up his basically his own accomplishments to cover his ass. And now women are doing it on Tom Brokaw's behalf. It annoys the shit out of That's what we hated about Lena Dunham and Jenny Conner immediately jumping to the defense of their co-worker who was accused of sexual assault. Is what we hated about all those celebrities who signed that letter in defense of Roman Polanski. And I understand it's really difficult. And and so one of the many things that's so disappointing about this is there's so much more of a burden on women. It's like when women have worked with a man who we learn is bad, they're asking the woman about how they feel about it. When like you need to be talking to more of the men because they're the ones doing this. But I understand that it can be difficult if this was someone who you really did respect and was a colleague and was a good friend to you, and then something comes out that they've done something like this. I get that that. It's very difficult, but that's also something that you need to deal with in private. There's no, if you are really about Me Too, if you're really about Times Up, if you're really about just women being able to do their goddamn jobs without being sexually harassed, you don't speaking out like that to defend your friend when you don't know the facts. It just feels it's such a slippery slope, and and I can understand that it's hard because I you know I'm. It would be very difficult if, if, if a man that I was close with, if I found this out. But that's something that I need to sit down with this person, him and I, and have this discussion and figure out what's true, what's not true. Figure out if this is someone I'm going to stand by or not stand by. Not this sort of knee-jerk reaction to, well, Tom Brokaw's important, so I'm going to sign this letter. Who knew that Megyn Kelly would be the only person to use the good, <sighs> the good sense white Santa Claus gave her? You know, and Megan, <laughs> it's one of the things, Megan does this, and it drives me crazy because she has these moments where she's exhibits basic human decency and common sense and she does it just often enough 
She doesn't do it all the time, but she does it every once in a while where it allows her the credibility that has gotten her as far as she is because you're like, well, you know, she says crazy shit, but then she has moments where she is very fair and even handed and seems to kind of care about women and even said something. She defended Barack Obama against Denise D'Souza about saying that he didn't have a black American experience. And it to me, it's. It makes it makes me so mad because I have a moment where I'm like, do I like Megyn Kelly? And then I have to remember, no, she's awful. You hate her. And, she's a terrible person. And these moments end up normalizing other things she yes. said. I was going to say, I'm blown away by people signing this p- petition because all it does is add to the idea that there are good good men and bad men, and it's the bad men who are doing these things to women. And if I've considered him a good man, there's a very good chance he didn't do it. And it's like this is not helping at all. This is this is uh, uh, you're adding conjecture. That makes us not reconsider anything he's done. This is a very specific antidote. And by the way, people uh, people in power, people like Tom Brokaw, if they're going to be lecherous, for lack of a better word, won't they do it in isolated moments where they can kind of control the situation? They're not going to just be willy-nilly about it. You know, not everybody is like a Harvey Weinstein, which I guess is the perception some people have based on Me Too, that everybody is just, you know, running a giant gambit with their uh, sexual improprieties. Well, and, if, and if they're not, then it's not a problem or we don't need to talk yeah. about it or mm-hmm. these are it's only the the worst of the worst that we need to be paying attention to and everyone else should get a pass or something part of this problem too is that i feel so many of the people who've been outed by me too were people that there were already sort of whisper campaigns about nobody signed a letter in defense of matt lauer because people were already at work probably being like we know what's up with this asshole we know that he's got this secret button in his office or something harvey weinstein people already didn't like him and you have then this sort of idea of people that we've all sort of known about for years who've been horrible and they've just been waiting you know for a moment to out that person and hold them accountable but you're not putting into account the fact that there are many men who've been able to go under the radar. And, and the other thing is when they did, when we would, you know, a report would drop about one of these men and they were immediately let go, don't you think then that means that that organization has already heard some things? They're not going to immediately fire someone off of this one story. What that probably tells me is that this is not the first complaint they've got, this is not the first time they're hearing of this, and that now the evidence has so stacked that they can't justify keeping him around, that the gamble of keeping him around is no longer worth it. So the notion that just because this is the one story that these women have, have gone to the press with and spoken up about, that that's the only thing, just from a legal perspective, that feels slippery to be able to let people go based off of that there was probably more there usually is more and tom brokaw still has his job right you know he's ryan seacreston and apparently i there there have been reports that came out uh today on tuesday morning that member or women who worked at nbc felt coerced into signing the letter they felt that um pressure was put on them that if they didn't sign the letter in support of him that you know there would be uh repercussions or or something along those lines so even to have an environment where you feel like if you don't sign this letter everyone's going to be looking at you like you have a much bigger problem and the gall of anyone from nbc in the past and in the future now trying to get on their high horse when it comes to all the sexual harassment that was rampant at Fox News <laughs> with, you know, Matt Lauer now and, you know, people being pressured to sign letters in defense of Tom Brokaw. It's like you were all the same. Yeah. 
By the way, did you read Linda Vester's account? Sounds like it fucking happened, guys. It was yeah. pretty fucking detailed. Yeah. And the fact that we have this dichotomy, too, of journalists rushing to defend Tom Brokaw while also condemning Michelle Wolf for, you know, exposing the lies and, you know, just some of the vile things that the Trump administration does, it makes you wonder where is journalism in our country right now? I just also, the world is upside down and I don't know. The the logic that people are employing just really doesn't make sense to me. And then I was like, oh yeah, Kara, because it's not logic. It's bullshit. But this complete lack of concern that your entire thought process, the way that we're seeing it through your actions and what you're saying just does not add up. And to have no qualms about that to me is super, super bizarre to to defend Sarah Huckabee Sanders and to shit on Michelle Wolf and to, you know, report on stories about Me Too and Time's Up and then to sign this letter to not see how none of that matches up and how that doesn't make sense. And, and the worst part is probably that they know that it doesn't have to and that they'll still be fine regardless. R. Kelly is back in the news again. The Women of Color Committee within Time's Up is now calling on all women to join the online campaign titled Hashtag Mute R. Kelly. It's calling for anyone currently profiting from R. Kelly and his music to cut all ties with him, and they specifically mentioned Spotify, Ticketmaster, and his record label, RCA. This is a slam dunk. They should do it. He is one of the most blatant criminals working in entertainment. I can't believe how long we've known about this. I was in college the first time I read uh, the main journalist, Jim Derogatis at the Chicago Sun-Times, who sort of did the main reporting about R. Kelly, hearing him finally say, you know what's actually going on here is that society cares about no one less than young black women. And I remember thinking at the time, that sounds true. Why is this a wild? Why is this a wild statement to me? Because it was a white guy acknowledging something serious about the lives of black women, and I don't think I had ever heard that before, literally in any medium. So uh, anyway, R. Kelly's the fucking worst. It's hard to even. It's been so long, and he was one of those people that I feel like you're like, oh, this is he's going to do this forever. He's obviously going to get away with this, and no one cares because they like step in the name of love. But I mean, it's it was encouraging to see again, like. I, I don't want to say that I had low expectations for Time's Up, but I do think that they have been revealing that they have women there who have a broad view of what needs to be fixed and what needs to be done. And to, and to specifically note that, you know, it's Time's Up, the women of color of Time's Up were saying this because this is a fight that women of color have been speaking out on well before anyone else. I think it would have been really disingenuous for Time's Up just as it is to to say this is the thing we're getting behind because it's most it's been mostly black women who have been talking about R. Kelly for years um, and to acknowledge that, like you said, it's it's he's been preying on young black girls and, and nobody cares. And just in such a like, do people forget that this motherfucker has been calling himself the Pied Piper? It was so blatant that that's why you're like in the way that Trump is just so blatantly awful and says all these terrible things. It's like you would only do that if you knew for sure you could get away with it. He's very Woody Allen-ish in that his crimes have matched his career. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many songs of his that when you listen to them, they're just like 
Oh. Yeah. You know, there's the fact that we know he married Aaliyah when she was 15. Yeah. Which, you know, according to her family, was very damaging to her throughout the rest of her life. Uh, And it's probably why her family is reticent to even involve themselves in releasing any of her music publicly anymore, too. You know, I think that everyone involved in Aaliyah's life felt, you know, horrified that that happened and they're still dealing with it. Do you know what still plays on a loop in my head? Did you see that interview a couple of years ago on HuffPost Live with that uh, journalist Caroline Matarassi Tarani where she sat with R. Kelly and he clearly didn't know what the questions were going to be about, but nonetheless, she basically asked about the content of his music, how it suggested, uh, you know, lechery, all the things his music suggests. And he basically started to refuse to answer, spoke gibberish most of the time, then went on to like insult her intelligence, then went on to say, but you're a beautiful girl. Why are you saying these things to me? Like he could not help but be constantly offensive, even when just talking to a journalist. And his his team released a statement that was just next level disgusting and stupid, where one of the, they said that. R. Kelly supports the pro-women goals of the Time's Up movement. And we understand criticizing a famous artist is a good way to draw attention to those goals. And in this case, it is unjust and off target. And then he said, get to it. We Mm -hmm. fully support the rights of women to be empowered to make their own choices. Time's Up has neglected to speak with any of the women who welcome R. Kelly's support and it's rushed to judgment without facts. R. Kelly's music is part of African-American and American culture, and that should never and will never be silenced. Since America was born, black women and women have been lynched for having sex or for being accused of it. We will vigorously resist this attempted public lynching of a black man who has made extraordinary contributions to our culture. I have to say. This nigga's lost his mind. Lost. Also... The comparisons with lynching is something that makes me, I cannot even, it is hard to express how fucking angry that makes me because people were saying that about Bill Cosby and the history of lynching in this country and what an unbelievably monstrous crime it was. It is so deeply offensive to those victims. Nothing that is happening to you, nothing that is happening right now is like lynching. In this, nothing, nothing is compared to, stop comparing anything. Also, one, having sex, which is like, that's not what you were doing when they're children. That's fucking disgusting. But also the notion that you were, these are black women that black people ever got lynched for having sex with black women. Like those were the quote unquote victims of the crimes. It's just so fucking ahistorical and stupid and reductive and so offensive to these people. I mean, it was already fuck R. Kelly, but these statements like that, that's when you're just like, oh, th- these people. He's disgusting. He's vile and he thinks he can get away with it. And these are, this is Trump level of ego. You know, it's mm-hmm. always this misogynoirish thing of saying that, you know, black men are being attacked. And there's always this conversation about the fact that Donald Trump's of the world get away with it. So why? So why is can't the black men, yeah, <laughs> going after R. Kelly? And, you know, it's like equality isn't the ability for black men to be able to rape as freely right. as white people. Also, you and, already you got OJ. That yeah. that should have been an, you got your one and now everyone else is mean. You can go visit him. He's probably at the park handing out tuppins to the pigeons. Um also Kel- by the way, I just want to say 
the reason a lot of those women probably didn't come forward is for this reason. Like, they don't want to, like... Of course, because no one cares about black women yeah. in America, you know? And it's exactly what Kara said, you know, historically to imply that... Uh, a black man was ever lynched. lynched for having sex with a black woman. White people didn't care about lynching black people because they might have raped a black woman. They didn't care about that. They also didn't even largely lynch people because of, quote unquote, sex or, right. you know, because of what a black man might have done to a white woman because historically what they don't tell you about lynchings is that a lot of them were business related a lot of white people used lynchings you know as intimidation to keep black upward mobility and success from growing in a lot of their neighborhoods there was a story in the la Times specifically about um the murder of elmore bowling um who was a successful black businessman in alabama in 1949 and he owned a store called the People's Grocery, and he was lynched by a group of white marauders because they wanted to destroy the entrepreneurial spirit of black people in that neighborhood. Right. Many people who were black business owners were often lynched because white people didn't want to see them as competition in their neighborhoods, and the reasons for the lynchings were reframed as sexual crimes, you know, so people could get well, away with it. Nobody knows what they're talking about. Everyone needs to go read A Warmth of Other Suns, which is an unbelievable, unbelievable book. And it talks about this really in like the 20s and 30s, like the utter reign of terror that black people lived in in the United States. And it was, you know, they would get lynched for things like that. But also for just like if you walk down the street and you looked at a white dude the wrong way, they will lynch you. If you got accused of stealing something and they put you in jail, mobs would come and steal in and take those men out of jail. And the, and the sheriffs or whoever the fuck would just turn their turn the other way and let them take them for the pettiest nothing shit to bring it all back. I don't even know what it would look like for us to feel satisfied with R. Kelly meeting anything resembling justice. And that and that's one of the things that's so hard where mute R. Kelly is an amazing start and, and to hit him where it hurts, which is financially and getting him getting these larger corporations to hold themselves accountable to who they choose to work with. But like you just want to see him rot at the bottom of a jail. Yeah. And the, the hashtag, the by the way, was started by um, Twitter users Sweet Lady Oro and Legis Empress. They've been using the mute R. Kelly hashtag for a long time, and now Time's Up has joined them in amplifying it. And I hope that we get some sort of justice, but I agree with you, Kara. I just, when the Bill Cosby verdict came through, that did I was, good, ha- it yeah. felt good, <laughs> yeah. but it's also like, so deli- is that is is that yeah. good enough? No, it's not, and it's so delayed. And and there are so many more of his victims who w- didn't specifically get justice via that verdict. Those where- are only three counts, and it's all for that one crime. Right. I will say I, I had forgotten that uh, justice like that, or you know, that he could get potentially get jail time was even possible because when the Bill Cosby story originally emerged, I feel like it immediately went to this place of statute of limitations or who knows what'll happen. So I'm. I guess I'm saddened that we got justice and I thought, oh, that's surprising. You know, Um, I just want to add also that basic journalistic fact about R. Kelly that people weirdly don't discuss is that he was tried on child pornography charges and never like rape or assault. And these stories keep emerging about how he's keeping women in cults, grooming them to be, you know, sex slaves, etc. His crimes are next level. Also, his entire team has quit. Yeah. (laughs) Before this 
mute R. Kelly thing got amplified, was it a week ago or so, where- Like his lawyer, his publicist. They all were like, bye. Which, a little too late, people, but, Oh, far. You know. they, like, I hope they get locked up beside his ass, too. Because yeah. they knew. Right. When we're back, an interview with Zachary Quinto and your favorite segment, Keep It. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Zachary Quinto is known for his roles as Spock in the Star Trek franchise and on the hit TV show Heroes. We see a lot of gay stories, especially in Hollywood, but a lot of those gay stories have straight actors playing gay characters. And and so I think there's something really declarative about being in a company of, uh, of all openly gay, successful, accomplished actors telling a story about characters who weren't able to find that same level of success or integration in their lives. And those characters were played by actors who struggled against uh, the weight of the industry at that time and the weight of society at that time. So, Zach is starring in a Broadway show, The Boys of the Band, which has already started previews but will officially open on May 31st and will run through August 11th at the Booth Theater in New York City. Thanks for joining me, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was interesting revisiting The Boys of the Band. Um, just seeing how those characters, in a way, feel outdated, but also like characters we've never seen before, just because mm. there's been such a dearth of gay characters on stage and you know in other forms of media. Mm-hmm. How did it feel, sort of stepping into a world and you know speaking sort of dialogue that sort of gay people don't talk like that? anymore what (laughs) are you crazy of course they do uh i think the vernaculars change but gay people still talk like that very much i think uh the kind of cattiness and yes the shade as it were i mean i think it's still it's like the work yeah totally i think it's still you know it it takes on different forms but i think the essence of it is still very much palpable and um you know i i feel like um it's very easy. It was easy for me, anyway, to be dismissive of this play, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. When I was asked to do it, I wasn't sure if I wanted to. Um, and part of the reason for that is the fact that it feels 
stilted or old, uh, you know, at first glance, you know. But the more I've been working on it, the more powerful I feel this play is for its resonance and um, and what it's exploring, which is really the idea of uh, self-acceptance, right? We've come very far, I think, in our culture and our society and certainly legislatively in terms of integration and acceptance as a community in the last 50 years. But how far have we really come in terms of self-acceptance? And that's what this play is really exploring um, through the lives and the, the psyches of these characters, right? And, and I think there are parallels, you know, whether it's how they relate to one another or how they relate to themselves or how they move through the world. You know, the idea of being an alienated minority, it takes a toll. And so I feel like this is a distilled examination of what that toll is because it exists in a, in a society and in a world in which that oppression was incredibly tangible, right? Like the society that that these guys lived in in 1968 before Stonewall uh, was incredibly um, bigoted. And, and, and the idea of uh, gay male identity in particular, but gay LGBTQ identity in general wasn't really married with mainstream society at all. So I don't know. I think it's changed in a lot of ways, and I think it hasn't changed in also a lot of ways. Yeah. We talk a lot about uh, representation on this show, and um, how important to you does it feel that this show is being produced by, you know, a gay producer, a gay director, and sort of out gay actors? Yeah, everybody really involved in the show is gay. There's, um, and I think it's incredible. I think it's really amazing, and uh, it's part of the reason why I I wanted to to be a part of it. You know, I'm, I've worked with Ryan before, and Joe Mantel and I have been friends for years, and. Um, uh, I've always wanted the opportunity to work with him. He's a phenomenal director. And then a, a number of the guys in the cast have been, you know, longtime friends. I went to college with Matt Bomer. I've known Jim and Andrew for years. I did a movie with Charlie Carver. I did a play with Brian Hutchinson. And I've certainly known of and respected the work of the other guys as well. So, you know, I think, yeah, representation is a really important aspect of inclusion, Obviously, and uh, and so to be in a gay play that's populated by entirely gay artists in the creative team is really exciting. You know, we see a lot of gay stories, especially in Hollywood, but a lot of those gay stories have straight actors playing gay characters, and and so I think there's something really declarative about being in a company of uh, of all openly gay, successful, accomplished actors telling a story about characters who weren't able to find that same level of success or integration in their lives. And those characters were played by actors who struggled against uh, the weight of the industry at that time and the weight of society at that time. So it feels meaningful and it feels um, empowering and it feels really fun. We're having a really good time. I don't know if this is dark and this is just B, but I feel like it's nice to see openly gay actors who are successful and it feels like you're the first sort of wave of it Mm because I feel like I spend a lot of time on Wikipedia looking at like old actors who are closeted Mm. and like falling into a hole of their like stories of how they died or their tragedies. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is um, creatively and socially I feel like we all exist on a continuum and when we tell stories you know, we're connected to the people who told those stories before us. Uh, a few seasons ago on Broadway, I did The Glass Menagerie, Tennessee Williams, and 
and the connectivity that I felt to Tennessee Williams, you know, this sense of lineage uh, that passes through time was something that was a really palpable part of that experience for me. And, and the same thing for this play, you know, Mark Crawley, the playwright, is actually still alive and, and was with us when we did a, a photo shoot for the play um, in December and, you know, will be a part of the, the opening in, in New York and is around and excited and we're really thrilled that we get to share the experience with him. But the vast majority of the original cast has passed away and, and a lot of them, you know, the gay ones, uh, a lot of them died during the AIDS epidemic. And, and so, you know, I do feel like there's something about standing up in this current climate, you know, which in many ways, again, has progressed, but in other ways has, has regressed. And I feel like, I feel like there's something uh, celebratory about the legacy of those actors and, uh, and the legacy of the play that we're all really honored to uphold and to be a part of. Thinking about, you know, just sort of the way that we're able to tell stories now, does it sort of excite you about maybe the future of Broadway, the future of stories that you can tell now? You know, like I think about growing up in college loving Tennessee Williams, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about what stories he could have told, you know, if he didn't have to focus on Tom. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, the the Boys in the Band is a play um, that was a response um, on the part of Mark Crawley, the playwright, to an article that was written in the New York Times by a New York Times theater critic named Stanley Kaufman, who basically impugned the gay playwrights of the time, Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, William Inge, for taking their gay experience and then dramatizing it in heterosexual relationships. So Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or Streetcar Named Desire or Bus Stop or Picnic, any of these popular plays of the day that were written by gay playwrights who didn't feel safe or comfortable telling their own authentic story on stage. And and Mark Crawley read that article and, and kind of said to himself, well, you know, he's right. As as horrible as the article was. Yeah, I've read as, the article. Yeah, and and it was homophobic. But I, but I was also sort of was. like, I saw where he was coming from. It was a call to arms yeah. as far as Mart was concerned. And um, and Mart wrote The Boys in the Band in, in direct response to that article. And so it was groundbreaking. It was a watershed moment. And it was something that people had never seen before. You know, the show ran for a year and a half. There were lines around the block. Um, celebrities saw it. Celebrities saw it. Yeah. yeah, of course. It was amazing at the time. And, uh, and so I do feel like, you know, it was... We stand on the shoulders of Mart and, of course, Tennessee and, and Albie and William Inge and all the all the gay artists that came before us at a time when they weren't able to tell their own true stories. And, yeah, I mean, it is exciting what we're able to tell and, and what we're able to explore now. And um, and so I feel like, you know, this is a moment of just stepping back, honoring and observing our history and our past and um, and connecting where we've come from. Well, thank you so much for yeah, being here. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Boys in the Band is now running on Broadway, so check it out. Yeah. And here we are with our favorite segment of the week. It's Keep It. Kara, why don't you go first? My Keep It is to John Legend. John is out here trying to help his friend Kanye, texting him things, trying to teach him, you know, entire grades of American history in very long text blocks. 
And honestly, man, it's not working. I get that he's your friend. First of all, now you know that every time you text him, he's going to screenshot and send it to all of us. You know that's what's happening. So if you need to speak to him, just call him, bud. Send him, you know. Low-key, I felt, though, that John Legend was explaining what he explained to Kanye, knowing that he was going to put it online. Because the thing that he explained to Kanye is a thing that you always see online from conservatives now where they say, did you know Lincoln was a Republican? Right. And MLK was part of the party. Right. It's like, mm. But it feels like, but then when he puts your actual facts alongside bullshit ignorance, yes. it's like that's not what people are going, the people who are now supporting Kanye are not going to read your thing and say, oh, wow, that John Legend sure seems to have a grasp on facts. They're going to go with whatever stupid shit that he's he's peddling. Um, and so I watch, I just, you know, John, I appreciate what you've done. Maybe just Amazon Prime him, a 10th grade history book, a people's history of the United States, perhaps. Warmth of Other Sons, again, can't speak enough about that book. Send that man some books start a book club check in with him make him do book reports on the chapters because these texts are not landing he is not learning anything and I'm tired of seeing them and while you're at it make another album like Let's Get Lifted because these these (laughs) these piano ballads are are starting to get annoying he needs to perform things at the Grammys though and that's appropriate for that venue I actually found the screenshot that Kanye posted of John Legend's text conversation depressing like your own friends have to call you the greatest artist of all time so that you'll even consider paying attention to them. Male narcissists are the fucking worst. It's you talk to toddlers. Or it's like yeah, when, exactly. It's like when my parents, when my uh, when before my mom had my sister and my parents had to buy me gifts uh, because they were worried I wouldn't be happy with having a sister. Did you see Michael Eric Dyson's text to him though? That, that thirsty. Was the, that I was mean, the it's... most hilarious. <laughs> I, brother, I want to write a cover story about you. It's going to be great. And Kage's like, Cool. Here's my assistant. Not number. E- it was it was Kim's assistant, uh, wasn't Kim's, it? Yes, that's what I thought. And, and then Michael's text back soon! Exclamation point. <laughs> the corniest motherfucker. So corny. It just, guys, it it's not helping, and it you don't look good. My keep it this week is for all of the people online upset about a three year old passage from Issa Rae's book. In her book, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, she wrote about how black women and Asian men were the least desirable when it came to online dating. And this was published three years ago when there were a bunch of reports uh, with proof that, you know, black women and Asian men don't get responded to online. And, you know, the whole book is comedy. And I thought that. You know, if you read the whole passage, you can tell that it's pretty much a joke. And people got upset about it online this week uh, for some reason. Even if you hate that content, asking for an apology strikes me as acceptable. I don't understand really boycotting Issa Rae. And she gave an apology, too, which I thought, you know what? It's your book. It's also been out for three years. Just stand by it and ignore people. I think also it's this is a a conversation that I think was coming out of that, which is, you know, we're all for holding people accountable for things that they've said in the past. But to have so little room 
to allow people to grow and to say that like I can just pull up any old thing that someone wrote five years ago and now say that they're the same person that they were before and that everything they've done since then is irrelevant is like I definitely get the urge for that because it probably feels shitty if you're a fan of someone and then you found out that they've said something in the past that you didn't like but I think there's also a big difference between like you found out that someone used to like you know, dress up as a Nazi for Halloween. It's like that probably exhibits like a deeper issue that maybe hasn't can't be worked out in a few years. But people you have to allow people room to evolve. And like we've especially with the Internet and things that live on. It's like if you are a person that's been on the Internet for the past few years, you've said something stupid. I delete all my tweets. I think it's good news for everybody. I don't have a a tweet up past a month old. (laughs) Sorry. That's not true. (laughs) Uh check um no i think that this is also this sort of impetus to always be trying to check people yeah you know it's the it's one thing if a celebrity is very problematic now and you look back and you're like oh they've been this way for 10 years so they're probably not going to change this sort of reminds me of when people were digging up Joy Reid's old blog post, mm-hmm. you know, being like, you know, here's a black woman who was very religious 10 years ago, had no contact, you know, with the queer community whatsoever. How she thinks now is probably a lot different. You know, if you dig up how I used to think about, you know, a lot of things years ago, they're all probably different than how you may think now. You know, you just think of how even trans rights have become more a forefront in the queer community. You know, if you look at the way that we may have discussed that as gay people 10 years ago before we knew anything or had friends who were trans or, you know, had trans activists writing about their experiences, a lot of us sounded dumb. It's just everyone trying to outwoke everybody. And it's like, can you just fucking relax? And like, it's not to say that people, we shouldn't, you know, have criticisms of people now, but like, at a certain point, like, is this, is Issa really the one you want to, that's who you want to come for? That's, that's how we're spending our day. This is the person who, you know, you feel the need to cancel or whatever. Like, give me a break. All right, Lewis, um, you can list all the keep it's you want as Karen and I get up and leave the room and we'll just let the music play. There are two, but <laughs> moving on. He tried to tack on a half. So here I we just go. Want the, I want that on the record. Uh, keep it to Michael Che and Colin Jost who get to host the Emmys this year. First of all, I feel like somebody who hosts any award show should have a connoisseurship about entertainment anyway. I want to hear from people who know stuff. And these guys have spent their entire Weekend Update careers being over everything. They, by the way, have never been bothered to have any real charisma. I want to say additionally that Michael Che's stand-up on Hilarity for Charity recently, I found... Uh, it, it it was a story about how uh, a gay guy hit on him and used that to get drinks from the gay guy. Anyway, I found that to be sort of like palatable homophobia that was boring. Anyway, I love boring homophobia. I know. I yeah. I, I don't like it saucy. Just keep it normal. <laughs> the but the fact is, like, so many people could be hosting the Emmys and really bringing a sort of you know a, a joy of entertainment to it. And I just don't want to see these two guys up there being over it. Colin Jost in particular, I understand he was the head writer of SNL. Has anybody ever seen more like their dad got them the job than Colin Jost on Weekend <laughs> Update? And my other keep it this week uh, is to Dancing with the Stars, which is an athletes-based season. Adam Rippon, the wait, gay rumble. Wait, hold on. An athletes-based season? What yeah. Do you mean? No, I'm asking. Oh, 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 celebrity athletes. So, like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on. 
uh, Morena Gasu. Yeah, it's season 775,000. Anyway, um, so Adam Rippon, uh, who I call Gay Rumpelstiltskin, who takes, you know, uh, uh, a straw and spins it into gay sass. I was so excited to see him. You know, he's I find him so funny. And again, it's not his job to be funny which is wild. But they put him on this season with Tanya Harding. I don't care if you guys like the movie I, Tanya. This is a monstrous woman who doesn't belong on television, let alone with Adam Rippon, who was a gay skating hero. Tanya Harding should have been on Celebrity Big Brother. Yeah. I mean, you think it's not coming soon? Her versus Omarosa would have been great. Uh, Well, that's our episode. I will see you all next week. Bye. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.